Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a Remax agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. My parents and I were all Mexican immigrants. We became citizens in the year 2000 after about a decade in the United States. I voted for Biden and Clinton in 2016. My parents voted for Trump both times enthusiastically. You know, people assume, wow, you must have compromised some of your values in order to talk about theirs. And I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> it's not a thing that happens. Their vote for Trump and my vote for Clinton and Biden is sort of the result of the paths we walked. So once I got to know enough of their experiences through the world and, and how that led to their view of everything on immigration, on guns, on everything, it just made sense the way they would vote. And once it made sense, that changed everything. That's Monica Guzman. When she realized that if she'd led the life her parents have, then she would have voted for Trump too. It was an insight that contributed to her decision to write her new book. The book is called I Never Thought of It That Way. And it's both a diagnosis of and a prescription for the ugly polarization that is gripping today's America. And the medicine she recommends is curiosity and courage. I'm really going to enjoy this conversation because you're all about what this show is about, communicating and relating, and you put a lot of work into it and have come up with some really interesting angles on how to do it well. And one of the things I love is that when you interview people as part of your journalism career, you do conversations rather than standard interviews with a list of questions. How did you discover that? Honestly, through gaining confidence and spending time and learning that if you sit with people, they will always reveal something interesting, um, but that you can't do it on your own terms. So I, I did used to come in with all these lists of questions because I was afraid that if I didn't have my questions and that they weren't prepared ahead of time, I, I wasn't going to get to learn about this person. I didn't, I hadn't learned yet to have faith in just the act and power of conversation, that, that if you are connected and stay connected, discovery is automatic. I think something happens. Don't you think something happens that's reciprocal? If you're really connected to the other person, then stuff comes out of that person 
that wouldn't have come out mm -hmm. if you just said something like, walk me through your life. You know? <laughs> you know? Exactly, like, exactly. You're not really showing that much interest That's in the right. details of it. Yeah, and in fact, you know, classical journalism sounds very buttoned up and you know an interview is is all about you so i'm just i'm just here to ask the questions but what i've learned is interviews that really connect and bring out someone's humanity and often lead to better stories really no matter what what they need sometimes is for the journalist to be a human too and so it's not just you in there asking the questions it's you saying every now and then I relate to that. Let me tell you about why. Something similar happened to me. And that's when an interview becomes a conversation. And it gets and, alive at that point, right? Exactly, because the other person sees themselves in you, you see themselves in them, and then you've transcended the, the transactional nature of an interview. I'm just here to get your story. Did you become aware of all of this before you had that critical set of conversations with your parents? Mm. Or did it grow out of that, those conversations? Were you fully equipped when you began to make a bridge between you and them? What did you have to make a bridge over for people listening so they know yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah, so my parents and I were all Mexican immigrants. We became citizens in the year 2000 after about a decade in the United States. And pretty immediately it became clear to me that my parents were not, as I had assumed, uh, liberal Democrats. I figured, oh, all these arguments over the kitchen table couldn't have amounted to an actual political divide in our family, <laughs> could they? But indeed they had, and they had a Bush-Cheney sign over my mom's uh, office desk that year. And, and I thought, oh my goodness. So, you know, that just commenced these, these really strenuous, sometimes very loud, uh, conversations and debates about everything that the country was debating then were a pretty open family. And so it's just our culture. You always know where people stand. So we would we would argue. We would debate about a lot of things. Um, so people assume when I talk about that, that, oh, because you were able to build a bridge with your parents, I voted for, you know, Biden and Clinton in 2016. My parents voted for Trump both times enthusiastically. You know, people assume, wow, you must have been nice. You must have compromised some of your values in order to talk about theirs. And I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> it's not a thing that happens. No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, you know, vociferous. I'm pretty direct uh, and they're direct with me. So what happens isn't that we're trying to get to agreement uh, or even consensus. Uh, instead, we're just trying to get to understanding. We're, we're just trying to solve that mystery of how could you, oh, Wait, now I see how you could. Yeah, you you said this really interesting thing that you were even a little reluctant to say to your friends, if I were them, I would probably have voted that way too. Right. So you really had some deeply empathic understanding of where they where they came from. Mhm. Mm Absolutely. It you know, with my with my dad and my mom, I've had the kinds of conversations that are not just about their reasons for voting the way they voted or my reasons for voting the way I voted. It's about the path that we walked to our views. And once you start unpacking that path, the conclusion becomes natural. You know, we, we, we tend to think about these things, um, our opinions, our decisions, 
as if we really chose each of them and in each one is kind of in a vacuum, but that's not true, right? Their vote for Trump and my vote for Clinton and and Biden is sort of the result of the paths we walked. So once I once I got to know enough of their experiences through the world and and how that led to their view of everything on immigration, on guns, on everything, it just made sense the way they would vote. And once it made sense, that changed everything. So I'm I'm curious about how big the rift was. Did you agree on what were basic facts or did you negate one another's facts? No, I don't think it got to the level of negating each other's facts, although in some ways it did. Uh, I remember having an argument about, you know, the kids being separated from their parents right. um, when they crossed the border, you know, became a very big issue recently. And and my fact was that, well, this came entirely from this Trump administration and their fact was, actually, some of these policies were in place before the Trump administration. I remember that argument, me going, no, they weren't. You're just making that up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then I actually went and looked it up, and it turned out it was a lot more complicated than I thought. Right. You know, so... Yeah, so accepting complexity like that is really hard, hard to do, but kind of important. Absolutely. Especially when you come in, and I've done this, right? I come in with the assumption that, oh, their view comes from a complete misunderstanding of an issue. And sometimes it's it actually goes both ways. And wow, I, I had come in with an opinion that was a little too simplistic, kind of like with that one. I had accepted sort of a binary, you know, either Trump started this or Obama started this or one of them is evil, one of them is not. And, and almost nothing is quite that flat, right? Uh, so that's where that's where our facts would collide. And then if we were lucky and if we had enough endurance in the conversation, we might actually learn that we were both right in some way, right? So, so yeah, so we have not clashed on the kinds of facts that I couldn't see at all, you know, mm. where, where they're negating, you know, for example, the results of the election, that would be really tough for me. Uh, I have spoken, you know, to folks who, who did negate the results of the, of the 2020 election. And in those conversations, my goal is not to try to correct them or anything like that. I know what I believe to be true based on all the evidence I've seen, but I'm there to be curious about the path they walked to their view. And there's a lot of truth in that path, even if I don't believe there's truth in their conclusion. I think there's a very interesting example of that in the story you tell about the trip to Oregon. Mm. That sounded like it was the first engagement of that kind that you'd been in, where you had a group of people, liberals coming from Seattle, meeting conservatives in a small town in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And they all wanted to get together for this exercise, right? Right. That might build a bridge. But the idea that you heard each other, that this is the thing about the water, what was the thing about the water? So this county in Oregon that we went to visit, very rural, conservative county, is very agricultural, that's their big industry. And so for the farmers in this place, one of the reasons that they voted for the Republican, for Trump, had a lot to do with the economy of farming. It turns out that there's this regulation called the Waters of the United States rule that basically says like when a body of water could fall under federal control. And so for farmers, you know, oh my gosh, they're worried if there's a lot of rain one year and between a couple of hills on my farm, 
and there's a rain-made pond on my land? Does that mean that the government suddenly can claim that land as their own? And this sounds absurd, but there's actually been some pretty close calls and things that have happened that actually make farmers worried about this. So they they didn't trust Democrats to take their concerns seriously about how that regulation could be interpreted and how it might, you know, unwittingly sort of take away their land or their control of their land. Uh, and so they voted for Republicans because they wanted to make sure that their concerns were, were heard. So when um, the liberals from Seattle went down, you know, we expected that we would learn about their voting decisions and how they were different from ours uh, on the on the variables that we understood. But then something came out of left field. Waters of the United States rule. None of us had heard of this. Before. I love that part of the story that everybody was saying. What this? What is this? Waters the of the United States? What, what the hell is that? Right, right. So it's an example of sometimes the reasons are reasons we couldn't have known. Things that didn't matter to us, but matter to other people when they make their decisions, when they, you know, choose views that collide with ours. We we think that we have all the variables, but we don't. And you have to ask yourself, what am I missing? What might I be missing? And sometimes the only way to know is to go and have the conversation and ask. So it seems that you who came from Seattle in that group were victims, in a way, of the SOS acronym that you have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is three ways for us to separate ourselves from other people mm-hmm. and become unaware, as you were, of what their motives were because it didn't relate to anything that you had experienced yourself. Mm-hmm. So what's the SOS? Yeah, so the SOS, the call for help, is three forces of human nature that have led us to this polarized, toxic place. It stands for sorting, othering, and siloing. Sorting is the very natural human tendency to want to be around people who are like us. In times of severe stress or tension or anxiety or fear, and that's been going on a lot (laughs) in our society in the last several years, the last thing we want to do is be around people we aren't familiar with. We want to be around people who make us comfortable. Then there's othering. And othering is the act of, again, a natural one, putting distance between ourselves and people who we deem different. And social science research has shown us that the differences don't even have to be that meaningful for us to discriminate even in very subtle ways against people who we deem are too different. And then finally, siloing. Siloing is the stories that end up surrounding us and stimulating our thinking and, you know, planting narratives in our head as a result of sorting and othering. We've seen, uh, for example, blue zip codes in the United States are getting bluer politically. Red zip codes are getting redder. We've seen the evidence of that. Um, It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. So these stories that we surround ourselves with, you know, if we're only around people who are kind of like us, it's so much easier to other the the those people with whom we are not familiar. It's so much more rare to find common ground or remember that we do still have a lot in common with folks who believe things that more and more seem so wrong to us. But are they as are they as wrong and unnatural and evil and crazy as we think they are? How much of that is the warping effect of SOS? And quite a bit of it is. So how much are we the victim of social media? Because Mm. we're fed 
we're fed more stories that we've already looked at, and we seldom get a, a, a countervailing view. Yeah. I mean, social media is is about algorithms. And those algorithms are, as we know, about increasing the bottom line, getting people's attention. And it just so happens that if those incentives are in play, the way that you can do that most easily with a human user, right, is to give them what they want. Um, and so we will double down on the things that stimulate us, that affirm us. Um, if, you know, we see a, a countervailing idea, we want to see it in the context of its being attacked. You know, we want to see it as, as the bad guy. Yeah, that's that bad guy again. Oh, look at him go. Look at that terrible idiot doing that thing. So that gets us going. It makes us feel good about ourselves. So yeah, social media wants our attention. You know, it sets up these algorithms so that that kind of content flies in that kind of way. And this is the world we're in. I don't see social media as all bad though, because it's just a tool. So it's the way you use it. Uh, for example, on Twitter, I've connected with some extraordinary people I never would have met who are dead set on mixing it up for themselves and and having ideas collide. And so they're building a community there where that's what's happening. So it's not the tool itself. It's how we use it. You're reminding me that I forgot while we were talking. You're, you're considered one of the prime influencers on the web, right? On social media? I don't know if I'm qualified to call myself that or not. Or <laughs> I like that you think I am. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if so, how do you avoid all of the negative jousting, or do you? I do. When you get to the bottom and it says, do you want to hear more? Do you want to see yeah. more tweets, yeah. including ones that have bad language? What do you do? Do you click on that or do you leave it alone? No. I mean, it. you know, so much depends in, on the mode I'm in. Um <sighs> Man, you're making me you're making me think in really cool ways about this. As long as I can stay in a curious mode, I can I can see and sometimes even engage with negativity pretty productively, pretty well. Uh, there's an author I love. Her name's Valerie Cower, and I quote her all the time on this. But she wrote in her recent book that anger is a force that protects that which is loved. So the negative comments on social media, on Facebook, you know, the toxic YouTube comments, they're always communicating something. They're, they're communicating something if you know how to listen, right? So even in a conversation, if somebody gets angry or negative, it's often a signal that there's something that they care about that they feel is being threatened. And so as someone talking with them or listening to that conversation, you can choose to be curious about what that might be. And that can diffuse tension pretty quickly. So I've done that on social media, right there in Twitter, right there in Facebook. And I've said things like, I didn't realize that that mattered, that that mattered so much to you. Can you tell me more about that? So you and go back and forth with people. You can. Now, you, you shouldn't you always. Do, you do. <laughs> Sometimes. But, it, yeah. but I have to be in that mode. I have to have the time. Sometimes getting engaged and embroiled in that is not really worth it. And so I choose not to spend a lot of time in spaces that make us big balls of anxiety with each other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so that's mostly how I avoid the negativity in my own life is I, I log off. You know, I have set periods of time that I'm in there and I do my thing and I talk to people and it's great. And then I'm out and, and living life and remembering that things are more than what's on my screen. When we come back from our break, Monica Guzman tells me how coming to love Seattle's notoriously rainy climate 
led to the title for her new book. And how a fruitful conversation with someone you disagree with requires courage and patience, as well as curiosity. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Monica Guzman. I asked her how she came up with the title for her new book, I Never Thought of It That Way. It was noticing that when we think or say that phrase, I never thought of it that way, it's evidence that some new perspective has crossed that chasm between someone else and yourself. And so this happened to me uh, one of the times that I noticed it in a big way. I had lived in Seattle less than a year. I was really depressed about the rain, as just about (laughs) everyone who moves to Seattle is. It's kind of cliche, but, you know, people get it. And, uh... I was sitting at a bar with a few new friends and someone who had lived here all his life asked me, you know, what do you think of, what do you think of the rain? What do you think of Seattle? And so I told him, yeah, you know, the rain's just really getting me down. And then he tells me a story. He tells me about how he has come to really love the rain because um, he told me how he drives his car and then he's going somewhere and then he parks and it's raining. And before he gets out, he'll actually just stop and listen to the drumming of the rain on the roof of his car. And he finds that it has such a musical, oral beauty, he said. Just this quality to it. The sound is so pretty that it helped him appreciate it. And as soon as he said that, something snapped in my head. And I and I, and I was, I never thought of it that way. I think I, I probably said that to him. I never thought of it that way. And in that instant, all of a sudden, I had this pathway to appreciating the rain that I'd never seen before. And sure enough, now I think rain is awesome. <laughs> and I, and I think too. it has a beautiful, like an oral beauty too. I do too. It's an, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an orchestra. Yeah, exactly. It's musical. 
You just were talking about curiosity, and I I get the impression that you really value curiosity a lot, Mm -hmm. and curiosity seems to be a driving, an engine for that kind of reaching out. But what if you're the only one exhibiting that kind of curiosity? Mm -hmm. What do you do about that? What if the other, you don't have a partner in curiosity, you have a challenger? Yeah, that, that is a question that I'm always reflecting on because it, it comes up a lot. People want reciprocity. To build trust and relationship, that reciprocity just seems so important. So people will say, and they've told me, you know, I had this conversation with my uncle, my friend. I was curious. And all they did was answer my questions. They never asked me their own they were just talking and talking about their points, and I'm done. That's it. I can't, I mean, it didn't work. All I can tell you is that curiosity didn't work. And so for that, I kind of take a step back because there's this principle summed up in a nice little quote that people only people can only hear when they're heard. So it's going to take a lot of listening to them before they open up and want to ask anything about you. And that's just, we can't force it. We can't force it. So I think that there is a certain kind of courage in patience uh, and in, in staying with other people. Some of my most fruitful interviews, um, you know, conversations over my journalism career, there were hours of sitting with another person and building that trust and, and letting them see that I was here to understand them. Sometimes people just don't believe that. The, the, those who have, of us who really want to intentionally be curious, we have to kind of prove that we can do it because just saying the words isn't enough, right? It's the tone that you use. How quickly do you jump in with your opinion when they give you theirs? Can you actually sit and listen and get curious about them? This is not that easy. And so sometimes unless people can see you do that, they're still going to believe that they're in a tug of war here and that they're defending themselves against you instead of joining you in an exploration. So, you know, with my parents, we've had a lifetime of trust build, and so it's easier for us to get really heated and even sometimes act mean, you know, to to bring out the banter and bring out our truths. But it's really hard to do that when somebody you're just getting started. You have to build the trust bit by bit. So, yeah, someone else didn't get curious about you in a conversation? Of course they didn't. But I will say this— Curiosity is contagious. I've seen it over and over again. It is contagious. You start using more curious language, speak more flexibly about your own opinions, the other person is much more likely to do the same back to you, sometimes without their even noticing. What would be examples of curious language? Yeah, so for example, I can say there's this sort of hierarchy of certainty of opinion, right? And I can tell you, uh, you know, kids under 18 can't have guns. Kids 18 and younger cannot have guns. Uh, That's like the absolutist way that I could convey my opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could also say, um, I think that kids under 18 should not have guns. I can also say, right now as I think about it, I just don't see a good reason why kids 18 and under should have guns. So in each of those steps, I'm allowing more flexibility around my opinion. 
I'm inviting people to tell me something I don't know. You know, for example, someone can say, well, you know, I'm in a family in the Midwest. And when we were 18, we went out and went hunting with my dad. We didn't kill anybody. You know, maybe somebody has a story like that. And I can be like, okay, interesting. Let me hear more. One other example I'll give is sometimes people want to jump in by saying, I disagree. And that's fine. You know, you can say, I disagree. You know, here's what I think. Or you can try something else. You can say, I see that differently. Instead of saying, I disagree, you can say, I see that differently. Can I, can I tell you what I mean? And then the other person gives you the buy-in and they go, yeah, sure. And then instead of just telling them your different opinion, you tell them how you see it differently and how that led you to a different opinion. Far more likely to be understood if it comes as a story. So I can see this being very effective with friends, acquaintances, family members. Do you feel that this approach applies all the way up to when you're battling in a way Mm. to get legislation passed? Ah, yes. That sounds like there's something, something slightly different going on there. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think that there's something very different. Uh, the world of advocacy and policymaking, I think that that is one of the places where these methods, the outcome, the better results of a culture that can be more curious really shows. Because right now, so many of our policies are reactionary. They're not thoughtful. Their, their, their responses to fear that the other side is going to do something terrible. We're seeing it over and over again. And that's not good policymaking, right? So instead, we do need our advocates to get to know their opponents a lot more than they're doing now. Uh, right now, I think we have an advocacy world that truly, truly believes it's at war and that there's nothing more to to say. There's nothing more to know. There's nothing really left to be curious about. Uh, I've seen that over and over, this sort of absolutist certainty about the other side's motives. All they want is to kill our kids. All they want is to blah, blah, blah. Really? (laughs) They hate freedom. I don't know about that. (laughs) Like, Who hates freedom? Really? Would Would anyone actually hate freedom? You know, what what kinds of assumptions are we making about each other's motives that because we're not we're not coming together and doing that work of putting it out on the table and helping each other understand where we're coming from? I just think that would lead to much, much smarter policy. But it's probably behind the scenes, unfortunately. And I've talked to members of Congress about this. Unfortunately, you know, out front on stage, what sells is the conflict. So we need advocates who are wise enough to do this work behind the scenes, right? Unfortunately, that's right now the only place it can be done. But pretty soon, I think, we'll be able to lift the curtain on that behind-the-scenes work and bring it out front because we we desperately need those models. And it's been true all along, by the way. The, the best advocates are already doing this work. This is how they do what they do. I've heard so many times from people in Congress or people who know Congress well this old story that they used to go out at the end of the day and have a beer together and then go back the next day and argue. It would be nice if we could get back to arguing again instead of just hating on first sight. Is that something you hear? It's It's a simple little practical thing, but are we, is it possible for them to get together socially have to work anymore? Is that gone forever or is is it possible to reignite it? 
Yeah, it is possible. And there's a group working on that. The The Committee to Modernize Congress is part of the U.S. House of Representatives, and their, their co-chairs have taken it upon themselves to study this problem of polarization and dysfunction in our legislative bodies. And and they see some of the root of these problems. Um, 1994, 1995 was when the Congressional Work Week moved from five days to three. And the idea was everyone in Congress has to fly home to their home states. It's better for fundraising, and it's also better for keeping the team in line. Um, and so that happened. And what that meant was the culture in D.C. of, you know, Republicans and Democrats meeting at their kids' baseball practice in D.C. just mm. died. And so that's the thing is... We can get so preoccupied with the reasons and the arguments that we forget that the reasons and the arguments do not hold power unless there is a foundation of trust underneath it all. And so when we kill that foundation of trust, when we stop engaging with each other as people, having a beer, whatever it takes, just remembering that we're people, <laughs> yeah. we, we just, we, we get lost in the reasons and the arguments they become everything, but they were never meant to be everything. Like what we're really doing in this country and as a society is trying to thrive together, even though we're very, very different people. And our difference is our strength. It's always been a strength of America in particular has held that up, you know? We don't need everyone to conform. That's why we're awesome, okay. <laughs> but let's work with that. What that means though, is if we're gonna do this and keep this experiment going of democracy in America, we have to actually build trust with each other. And the more that we fracture, the fewer opportunities we give ourselves to do that. Is Braver Angels, the organization you're working with a lot, is that making an organized effort to achieve yes. some of this? Yes. How, how, how does it do it? Yeah, I mean, the reason I joined Braver Angels about a year ago on their national um, staff and leadership is because I just... I just don't see another organization which is so is so humanly and at such a scale um, doing this work. There are so many wonderful organizations um, touching it from so many angles, but but for me, it's about empowering people to bridge divides in their daily lives. And Brave Angels is a community of um, what was it fifty thousand subscribers? We have ten thousand paying members, and it's people all across the country. Seventy four local alliances, including here in Western Washington. Um, organizing themselves in their own communities, having leadership that is equal parts red and blue, conservative and liberal, and modeling this thing that feels so impossible. And it's based on the root of Braver Angels is the workshops. Um, what so was actually, the Oregon trip an example of one of those workshops? It wasn't. So that was not a Braver Angels event per se. Uh -huh. That was something that me and my co-founder of a local news organization um, sort of created from the best wisdom that we could find at the time. But uh, but it could have been. I mean, it was similar enough in some ways. Well, what, what goes on in the Braver Angels workshops? So this comes from one of our co-founders, Bill Doherty, is a renowned family therapist. So it's the methods that come from marriage therapy, mm. uh, with the difference that in America, divorce is not an option. At least we don't want to believe that it is. <laughs> There's a lot of Americans who are like, nope, we're not, we, that's not, that's not a thing. So, so he has been um, our architect, and along with a lot of the communities we have 
uh, all kinds of workshops that, f- that have have a certain sort of progression. Um, depolarizing within is one of our workshops where you learn how to detect the assumptions that you carry inside yourself about people you don't really know and don't understand. There's the building skill skills to bridge the political divide, and that's about skills to bring into your conversations with people who are different so that they can be more productive and successful. There's our famous red-blue workshop, which has been studied by scholars at Brown University. It's been shown to have depolarizing effects, and it brings conservatives and liberals together to see each other practice humility about their own side, and then ask Actual curious questions about the other side, not gotcha questions, not Mm. accusations masquerading as questions, actual questions that help them understand. So there's several more, um, but that's that's the meat and potatoes of it. And now we have an, um, an initiative called Braver Politics that's taking these workshops into the halls of power. So we've done workshops with members of Congress and their staffs. We've done workshops with local legislatures, state legislatures, et cetera. Um, and it's just, it's just this urgency, right, that up and down, we need a better way. This is very heartening to hear. I thank you for spending this time with me. We're running out of time. And we usually end our show with seven quick questions, most of which I think you've already given the answer to. But it would be interesting to see mm-hmm. what, what you come up with as a a kind of a summary of what you would have said if you, if you were giving a longer answer. Mm-hmm. What do you wish you really understood? What do I wish I really understood? I wish I really understood uh, when I met someone within minutes how best to connect with them uh, so that we can move to a candid and open conversation as quickly as possible. Okay, next question. Mm-hmm. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Ha ha ha. You don't. <laughs> you don't. You get to the truth behind the path they took, um, and you build trust. And maybe someday, maybe someday, you're able to tell them how you see it and the facts you see and why the facts you see seem a whole lot more powerful than their facts in a way that they can really hear. Okay, great. Next. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh my gosh, Alan, I can't think of, I can't, oh my gosh, it's putting me on the spot. Um, goodness. I don't, I, I don't have, I don't have anything fresh for you on that one. I'm going okay. to think about that one. Okay. Okay. The strangest question. Now, you're not going to like the way this question is framed. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Ah. <laughs> if you're in person, honestly, yeah. I think what helps is actually moving, like standing <laughs> up, shifting in your seat, coughing, just just ah, anything that gets them to do. Letting them know there's <laughs> a live person your, there. There's somebody here. You're uh, a person, sometimes not a it takes that. Exactly. Yes, I've had to do that a lot. Okay, now this is right up your alley. You're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you get a real, genuine conversation started with this absolute mm. stranger? Mm. I observe them. I observe something about them. You know, what are they, any kind of interesting jewelry that they have that I could ask about? Um, you know, what are they eating? Um, who are they talking to? How are they reacting to whatever's going on around the table? And so I look for that. I look for an observation to share. 
oh, I noticed, um, I, I have, I have a, a thing just like that. Like, oh, can I see the thing that you're wearing? Something that actually is about them, um, but that is an observation about them. And then that right. hopefully releases a story, which releases more stories and gets the conversation going. Great. Next to the last question. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? Remembering that um, that all of us are making it up as we go along. I think when I feel unconfident is when I start to think that other people are just better equipped to do what they want to do. And, I, and then I remember, no, that's not true. We're all... We're all here figuring it out as we go along. None of us really knows what we're doing. We're all just doing our best. Last question. What book changed your life? Mm. Um, I think today I'll say, uh, yeah, the, the Collected Essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Huh. He's a transcendentalist writer from like the 1800s in America. And his essay, Self-Reliance, just speaks to my philosophy of life in such a big way and just the way he writes essays the straightforward beautiful way that he helps you see your own power has always been really inspiring to me well this has been wonderful thank you for joining me in conversation and i i wish you the best in your work you're doing you're doing angel's work it's great thank you thank you so much for being curious about it that's what what it's all about (laughs) so thank you This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Monica Guzman is Director of Digital and Storytelling at Braver Angels. She began her work trying to build bridges between divided communities when she co-founded the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Ever Gray. Her new book is I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Arthur Brooks. His new book, From Strength to Strength, was inspired by a conversation he overheard on a plane. It led him to wondering how he could remain happy and fulfilled as he grew older and began to lose some of the skills that had made him a success. There's a thing called fluid intelligence that makes you good at what you do when you're young. Whether you're an actor or a politician or an electrician or a college professor, you get better and better in your 20s and 30s. And then it starts to get harder and a lot of people don't realize that that's not the end. The real end of the story or the continuation of the story is what they get good at next. 
that's kind of your happiness 401k plan, what you should invest in so that you can get better and happier and actually more successful for the rest of your life. Arthur Brooks and how to invest in a happier, more successful future next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.